Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Today's podcast concerns Detroit, upon which the Michigan state government imposed emergency financial management, resulting in the nation's largest municipal bankruptcy on July 18, 2013, with Detroit indebted more than $18 billion. The city has since incurred $200 million in restructuring fees alone. During Detroit's restructuring, numerous schools have been closed and tens of thousands of households have had their water shut off for arrears as little as $150. This is still continuing. The Detroit water bill is double the national average, albeit 40% of its residents live at the poverty line and are paying an average of 20% of their household median income on water. These are gross violations of human rights. Not only did the city resort to denying its residents water and sanitation for not being able to afford their bills, but the bills are also a violation as the right to water is the right to affordable water, which the UNDP has held should be no more than 3% of a household's income. The UN Special Rapporteurs for Water and Sanitation and Adequate Housing visited Detroit in October 2014 and rebuked the city for not only denying its residents the human rights to adequate water, sanitation and housing, but for the discriminatory nature of water shutoffs, which have disproportionately affected the city's black population. While businesses had $41 million in water bill arrears and residents only $26 million, only 3% of businesses had their water shut off and businesses owing tens of thousands of dollars, even hundreds of thousands of dollars, have not been shut off. For instance, Ford Field owed $55,000 and Park Golf Course owed $200,000, but neither had their water shut off, while the average household bill that had its water shut off was $554. Additionally, Detroit paid a private demolition contractor over $6 million to enforce the water shut off. To protest these human rights violations, artists have taken to the street, occupying the walls of the city to protest the city's occupation. In response, Detroit established a graffiti task force diverting already stretched resources to prohibiting freedom of expression. With me today, I have Antonio Cosme, an artist, activist, community organizer, and urban farmer who was charged with fellow artist William Luca with felonies for painting Free the Water on Highland Park's decommissioned water tower in 2014 in protest to the water shutoffs occurring in their community. Their prosecution and the prosecution of other political graffiti artists appears to be a tactic by the city, which is in the process of a painful restructuring from curbing protest and political expression. Hi, Antonio. Welcome to Gravity. Hi. Let's start with what's been happening in Detroit with respect to the water shutoffs. Now, I understand that around March 2014, the city began shutting off people's water that were in arrears as little as $150 and that this is still continuing and that tens of thousands of people and families with young children have been impacted. How has uh, this been, how has this occurred in your community? What have you seen? So the water shutoffs are part of a larger system, which is um, kind of like the ver- our version of austerity in the United States. Uh, you could call it neoliberalism, you could call it a financial takeover, but essentially the governor has made a law that, that enables financial managers to take over small and medium-sized and large-sized municipalities and restructure their governments and sell off government assets and privatize government institutions. So Detroit, as a city, has been under emergency management. Flint has also been under emergency management. And is under this uh, emergency management dictator that the water shutoffs have happened and that Flint's water was cut off and the, the poisoning of Flint happened as well. It's all under the same emergency management system. I've seen personally my neighbors get shut off. I've seen handicapped people get their water shut off. I've seen a pregnant woman get her water shut off. 
uh, and the water shutoffs are 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 blind to who you are, how much money you have, what sort of able body you have, and what sort of position that a, a family or, or person is in. It is if you are one hundred fifty dollars or more, you have to you lose your water. But at the same time, they're not cutting off uh, golf courses and private institutions that had some like thousands of dollars of of back costs and fees. So they've been really disproportionately shutting off residential homes. Right. So when you said that they've been blind as to uh, <clears throat> people's ability to pay, it seems that they're actually not. They're doing the exact opposite. Now, if it's only about money, you would assume that you would go for the people that owe the most and uh, yeah. that can pay, right? You would go, if you want money, you need to go to the people with the pockets to pay. Now, shutting yeah. off people's water and making it, uh, much harder them, for them to live. And obviously, if they're surviving on bottled water, they're paying much more for their water and don't have the, you know, didn't have the income for the water from the uh, water company to begin with. So now it's it's much uh, worse for them. So when you think about it, is it really a scheme to possibly have people leave the city and be able to redevelop it in a way that, you know, the big money that's coming into Detroit wants to redevelop it. I mean, it, you know, prime real estate for a, a, a more, uh, in their eyes, a more desirable demographic. And this is just an ostensible reason to take over a community. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's kind of the, the working theory of most of us who are on the ground resisting this and kind of watching it happen from from the outside. Um, that folks really don't want to deal with the impoverished people of Detroit. They want Detroit as a city. They want Detroit as a brand. They want Detroit as the land that's there. They want Detroit as the buildings and resources that are there, but they don't want the impoverished black people uh, and Latino people who live in the actual city. So there has been uh, not only just the water shutoffs, they've been shutting off schools in certain areas, in the deepest, most impoverished communities, They've been closing schools and selling the schools, buildings, and utilities. Um, in some cases, like such as Southwestern High School in Southwest Detroit, as an example, they shut off this really successful high school in, our, in my community. Students even protested it, and they shut it up. They turned off the school and like quickly sold that building to uh, an aluminum castings corporation. And now that high school is now making aluminum castings. And that's like, so all the, the students were shoved into a much smaller school. At the same time, uh, the high schools are popping up in new hip areas, you know, like such as Midtown in developing areas. So like you, there's actually a shortage of high schools in impoverished communities. So if you overlay on a map where the, the water shutoffs have gone, where the, the houses have been foreclosed upon, we just had the biggest foreclosure crisis in the nation's history in 2014. If you overlay where the foreclosures are happening, where the water shutoffs are happening, where the high schools are happening, there's an obvious plan in the works to remove poor people from certain areas of the community as, an, and as a way to change the demographics of Detroit. You mentioned that this has all occurred under emergency financial managers. These are officials appointed by the Michigan state government to take over distressed cities and essentially put them into receivership. Kevin Orr, a bankruptcy attorney, was appointed as Detroit's financial emergency manager and filed the nation's largest ever Chapter 9 bankruptcy proceeding on behalf of the city. Now, these emergency financial managers have sweeping powers to reallocate a city's resources, and they don't have to consult with nor heed the opinion of local residents and locally elected officials, and in effect, take over uh, local government, thereby effectively disenfranchising the local population. 
In 2012, Michigan held a referendum on the appointment of emergency financial managers. And overwhelmingly, the people of Michigan voted no. And the government didn't like that. So they put in a new legislation and the new legislation said that it couldn't be repealed by a referendum of the people. Now, that is so undemocratic. It just has really been an insidious takeover of uh, the people of Michigan, it appears. And and when you look at where the em- emergency financial managers have been instituted, they've been instituted in the cities that are undergoing distress, but really they're overwhelmingly black populations. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at uh, Flint, if you look at Benton Harbor, it's all been a resource grab from black sovereignty and reducing the sovereignty of black communities all over the state of Michigan. Something like more than 50% of Michigan's population, of black population, was under emergency manager at one time uh, in 2012 and 13. So there's absolutely a racialized aspect to emergency management, as well as the way city planning is laid out and the way the United States um, suburbanization has happened. Detroit and a lot of these areas are like super hyper segregated, where an entire city is where the black community lives. That community is systematically... Uh, devalued and has way less resources, and therein lies the the potential for um, you know financial issues in each of those cities. And they came for resources, you know, like in Detroit they came for the water. In Van Harbor they took a beach. There's a public access beach for this uh, majority black city that was right next to St. John's, which is a very big, beautiful city with tons of beaches and tons of water. Uh, but that St. John's city, where the wealthy white people lived, really wanted a golf course, so they they had an emergency manager over there. Um, and they took took the public access beach of of, of Ben Harbor, um, so it's really very much so uh, reminiscent of structural adjustment agreements in Latin America. The IMF and the World Bank would institute structural adjustment agreements on governments in Latin America, and when they couldn't pay their debt, they'd come and privatize resources. And that's very much so what's happening in in these majority black cities in Michigan. And there's a lot of cities since the 2008 financial crisis that are on the precipice of financial ruin because of the way the housing crisis has affected income taxes, which is what pays for a majority of the taxes in municipalities. Right. And then they claim that they're in distress and they need money and that and, and somehow they're going to get it by turning off people's water, <laughs> even though they yeah. don't get any money from doing that. Yeah. So instead of going after the people that, uh, you know, I mean, like General Motors was in arrears for about a million dollars. The golf course was in arrears. They weren't attacked. Yep. Whereas uh, some families received bills. And then this was quite shocking that not only were they in arrears for as little as $150, but some families, because of mismanagement, had not been billed appropriately for six or seven years. And so they had a cumulative bill of thousands of dollars and their water shut off because of the water board's own mismanagement. It is completely reprehensible. And that, that, that even goes that even goes deeper as well, like both of those issues I mentioned. So like they put on a new meter system, these new electronic meter systems, and those new meter systems were measuring water for people for years prior to that that were mismanaged so like all of a sudden somebody would get a bill and it'd be thousands of dollars and they had no idea why that was like that and some people had just moved into that home and they were getting the you know bills from a lot of older people as well so it's absolutely uh, a lot of mismanagement and even to go back further the detroit so why is the water so expensive and unaffordable in detroit the detroit public water system has been under public control since the clean water act in the 1970s 
when they in in and a good idea was the di- desire to clean up the rivers. There was a lot of pollution because of the auto industry and all the industries in Metro Detroit. But into in this initiative to, to clean the river, the suburban communities took over the Detroit water system because of the millions of dollars of contracts that Detroit water system has the ability to give out. So in that period that it was under federal oversight under Judge Fikins, they did all sorts of unnecessary spending on facilities. And on, you know, I talked to a plant operator, Russ Balance, who confirmed a lot of these things with me, um, that they did all sorts of unnecessary spending under this uh, federal control, under a federal judge. And if you look at, like, the Kwame scandal, Victor Mercado was the guy who was managing it during all of this corrupt period, and, and that's what took Kwame down was the water system um, and contracts related to the water system. So it's been mismanaged by the, fed, by the fed, federal judges, and in that time they put the, the water system in enormous amounts of debt. And that's largely connected to the sewage system and upgrades in the sewage system. So everybody's sewage bills are outrageously high. And, like, the water bills is like $20, $30, but the sewage bills is like $100, $120, $130, $150. And that's, um, you know, that is also, like, not, like, a public – like, it's not the mismanage of Detroit owning that water system. It's the mismanagement of the federal judge who's been in control of that water system. And now they're using the mismanagement to their advantage to, as you said, restructure the city – uh, in order to redevelop it for other people's interests. Yeah, they literally have connected people's water bills to their taxes so that if you don't pay your water bill and you get these thousands of dollar bills from these new smart meters, they can take your home if you don't pay your water bill. Yeah. I mean, and, and even if that didn't happen, if you don't have access to water in your home, I mean, if you have to buy bottled water, okay, apart from the fact that it costs a lot more to uh, have to pay for bottled water, but, but just imagine how long you have to spend cleaning yourself with, with bottled water and, and preparing the water to, to use in your daily life. Yeah. If you have small children, not having water for your children, I mean, maybe your children might be liable to be taken away by the state. You know, you might want to abandon where you live. And I think that that is, you know, and also if they're closing down schools, that's another thing. You need schools for your children. So I think that is actually the intended aim, that families leave, that people leave, and they can redevelop this. Now, we've been talking about something that's so heinous. I mean, the UN has criticized what has been happening in Detroit and Flint. I mean, there is a human right to water that we should recognize in in our law. Because, you know, how can we have any other right if we do not have the right to water? We cannot survive without the right to water. If, if we respect anybody's rights and anybody as a person, we talk about respecting the dignity of people and inalienable rights and so forth. I mean, what is the worth of any right if we do not have the vital necessity to live? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think within, you know, and taking a kind of mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. and deeper f- framework for... Uh, you know, the, the the logic of who is a human under settler colonial regimes is defined by who's, like, racialized in that society to be a human. And indigenous and black people in the United States are not racialized to be humans. In the way, you know, it was legally codified, you know, a couple hundred years ago, as black people were three-fifths of a person so they could get a little bit of voting, uh, you know, prospects, or get a little prospects for the power of a state. Um, but if you look all over the world, like, it's, you know, black impoverished communities like Detroit that are in these super segregated, super racialized areas. Like, you know, people in Palestine, they're shutting off their water. I mean, water is going to be a really, really significant thing going forward. The privatization of water by companies like Nestle, uh, by so many of these big, you know, Coca-Cola, 
they're pumping water out of the ground and it's like, you know, it's reducing the water table. It's denying indigenous people access to natural groundwater that's there. Um, you know, if you look at like all over the world, by 2030, it's predicted that the demand for water will be higher than the supply of water. And we're already seeing water wars taking place. Uh, what happened in Syria was very much so uh, a lot of these rural populations where farming was a possibility because of water are not are no longer possible because of you know climate change and the things that are affecting that. So, you know, I, we would think that water is a human right because it's a necessity to live. You know, we're all born in water. Uh, what our brains also in water. It's absolutely a vital thing to life and to consciousness and to to humans. Um, but at the same time who will have water and the politics deciding who gets water and who has access to those resources will be absolutely central to life in the next, you know, 50 to 100 years at least. Was over water are not only a very real possibility, but they've already occurred. For instance, the Middle East has been plagued with conflict over water and not just oil. The Six-Day War in 1967, for instance, was about gaining control of strategic water resources from the Jordan River and control over the West Bank Aquifer, which to this day, I believe, provides Israel with one-third of its water usage. Mm, wow. The aquifer supplies the settlements that may be in violation of international law, while the Palestinian people are not allowed to tap into these resources. For instance, they can't build a well and take water from it. Wow. So water is a very central problem. And also the Syrian crisis did start with a massive drought with farmers not being able to farm and moving, then being displaced from the country, moving into uh, the cities and where there were no jobs for them. And, uh, you know, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which supply the Syrian Arab Republic and Iraq, uh, flow down from Turkey. And Turkey from the 70s has been siphoning off the water uh, with the Greater Anatolian Project. There were 16 major dams and it just, you know, basically didn't give a damn about people that went wow. in the river. So it is a major problem uh, around the world. And, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it doesn't affect me. But, you know, it, it's going to affect everyone. It's a trillion-dollar industry, and three major corporations pretty much own uh, the water industry right now. We have um, Suez, uh, the the French company. There's Bechtel. Um, and uh, actually, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the third one, but, they're, but, they're, but they're, there are very few companies that own this water. Now, so when we're speaking about what happened in Detroit and you're talking about essentially effectively segregating the communities, now I understand that in protest to this this heinous crime of denying people water and uh, pretty much trying to kick them out of their own city, uh, you protested this uh, with art that said free the water. Uh, now, please tell me um, why you chose to use the Highland Water Tower for this, and um, and you know, and how many people would have seen that, and, and why you thought that was a good location for the art. Yeah, just uh, briefly on the last thing you just stated, Veolia is one of the companies that is managing the Detroit Water and Sewage Department. So it's not just the mismanagement of the federal oversight. It's also the partial privatization of the municipal system that is causing the water prices to become so unaffordable. So answering the question is um, the Rise Up Hip Hop and Art Collective, which I'm a part of, is a Chicano indigenous uh, you know, artist, activist organization. We are part of the People's Water Board Coalition, and that's the coalition of, uh, of people started by Charity Hicks who brought the United Nations to Detroit in resistance to the water shutoff. 
And one of the things we've been pushing for is water affordability. You know, we don't want free water. Nobody wants to get anything for free in Detroit. You know, we, it's our system. We've built it over the years and we want to continue to support it as a public system. And that's been the narrative, unfortunately, from the people on the outside. So that's really what drove the message, this, this corporate media narrative uh, that's also very anti-black that looks at people in urban communities as welfare recipients who just want, you know, they, they have big TVs and they have cable TV and they have, you know, big cell phones. So why don't they pay the, the, uh, their water bill instead of those things? This has been like the logic and the reasoning of people on the outside. And as, as people have been active in the movement, uh, we are not stressing free water. We're stressing water affordability because if the water bills are 10% of your income, you know, that's absolutely unaffordable. You know, we should be paying, like, if you're making $26,000 a year, $10,000 a year, as families in my community are, and you have a $2,000, $1,000 water bill, you just simply can't afford that. You need to pay for food. You need to pay for gas. You need to pay for taxes on the house. I mean, all of those other things are, are, are super important. So the messaging of water affordability has been the, the clear um, thing that we've been saying as people on the ground. And we wanted to flip that message with the verbiage that we chose, free the water. Because it's water that's being enslaved, just like the, you know, the, the urban population that is this working population that is no longer desired. Um, you know, and there's wholesale movements to, to rid the city of people in terms of the criminal justice system utilizing no, broken windows policy, which is what our case is really about, this is broken windows ideology. Um, and we chose that specific location. Uh, it's the intersection of two major freeways in the city of Detroit, actually one of the first sunken freeways in the, in the country's history. Um, and it's right there that we chose to do that because and it's, it takes a bit more exciting. Holland Park is like a donut hole city that's within side of Detroit. It's not even actually a Detroit city. And that city was there because of an auto industry that was there, Dodge. Dodge had a big factory there. They wanted good tax benefits. So they you know, have a small city that existed inside Detroit. And they've since left. And that municipality has also been there under emergency management. And that municipality lost their water resources a couple of years prior to our uh, actually you know, tagging that water tower. So there's actually a lot of like kind of symbolic reasoning for why we chose that water tower because of the their own emergency management their own being you know located on detroit's water system and um so that's like the the central reason we chose that area uh there's also the, the there was the benefit at the time of avoiding the graffiti task force uh because we were technically under highland park's water jurisdiction uh so the, the highland park police are the ones who ultimately arrested us uh, that night on November, I think, 4th or 5th, um, the Highland Park police are the ones who held us for 18 hours when we got busted doing that. But it was really about high visibility, and the messaging was very much so designed to support the the verbiage and the what's happening in the water move. So when you, said high, when you say high visibility, and <clears throat> forgive me for my ignorance of the geography of Detroit, but it... It, it seems to me that you're saying it was high, it, it was visible from a highway. And if you say that the city is segregated, would you, and uh, that when we're talking about the the heinous uh, denial of the right to water and everything that's been happening in Detroit has been affecting only the most vulnerable communities. So the people from the suburbs, possibly driving downtown, would they have seen this? Yeah, it's it's people people from the suburbs as well as people from traveling from side to side in the city. So. Detroiters use the freeways just as much as anybody. I mean, I, I live right close to two freeways. Um, 
And yeah, I think the freeways are, it's an interesting thing. Uh, we've done also other, uh, actions that use the freeway as a, a mode of trans, as a mode of communication about various issues. Um, when we did the Motown slowdowns in resistance to emergency management, we shut down the freeways with, uh, signs on bridges and overpasses so that people could say that Detroiters are, you know, stopping traffic on people's morning commute, suburban people's morning commute into the city, um, as a, as a, as a way to tell them what's going on in the city. Cause a lot of people don't know And the freeways really allow people from the suburbs to come into the city very quickly and get out without actually seeing what's happening in the neighborhoods. You could think Detroit is only its downtown if you come in on the freeways, go downtown, and leave on the freeways because you just don't have a really good sense of what's actually happening in the city. So the freeways are, are a really, really wonderful place uh, for democracy, you know, as a place for putting up messages, as a way for, you know, making it clear to people what's going on in the city and as a way to resist what's happening. And, and making it clear to people that they are affected, that it's right next door, that the denial of water, the kicking out of families, the shutting down of schools is happening right next door to them and that they are not sheltered from it. I think, you know, it, it's it's very important. And, you know, this country is built on political expression. And what is more of a political expression than protesting a, a crime against the people in, in such a way, but you were charged with um, two felonies, is, is that correct? And it was, uh, and you were facing time in jail. Now, I, I realize that everything um, has been uh, finished now, but uh, how long did it take the police to charge you? It seemed that this was painted quite a while ago and that uh, you had a court date only recently. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was a highly visible water tower at the intersection of two freeways. The police were kind of, we, we suspected they were watching us. They caught us on scene in 2014. Um, and we were, you know, climbing down from the water tower when the police pulled up and, and arrested us. And they charged, they charged us a year and six months later. Uh, so we didn't actually receive anything in the mail. So they let us go and they said they would call us. We gave them our lawyer's number for them to call him. And they they didn't they never reached out to our lawyer. We didn't hear back from them at all for a year and six months. And they sent us something in the mail. Uh, and after a year and eight months, they have some sort of extra duty to show that they didn't cause harm by waiting so long. There's um, it might be a violation of the, of the Sixth Amendment because you have a right to a quick and speedy trial, uh, and uh, it could actually affect your trial. Uh, and your ability to defend yourself the longer that they wait, you know, tarnishing of evidence, uh, I don't know, witnesses' memories, a, a lot of things. It, it's it's a, it's quite a violation. Yeah, that's one of the motions our, our lawyer filed in the original um, rejection of the case was a speedy trial issue. Um, so, yeah, we, 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 I was charged with, me and my William Luca were charged with trespassing and malicious destruction of property. So in the ensuing time after they were charged, we first went to court in March of this year. Um, and it was, again, a year and six months after the incident. They actually connected William with his graph name, Astro, and they uh, came, They got a search warrant, and they were going to bust down his door, actually. And the ma- luckily, the manager of the apartment complex he stayed at opened the door and let them in. But they went into his house, they shook up his house and, you know, made a mess. They patted down his mother and scared her. And uh, just just for art materials, literally doing a raid on his house 
just to connect him with the graffiti name that we left on the tower. So it, it got really serious. I mean, the graffiti task force is is, is making no qualms and spending a, a absurd amount of resources on prosecuting and catching graffiti artists. <laughs> Instead of using limited resources to provide residents with vital services such as water and education and fixing infrastructure, it seems the state's appointed officials have deemed the resources best spent on policing water shutoffs and preventing protest. Now, going back to your charges, it seems you were charged with a felony based on the fact that you were trespassing into a key infrastructure facility. Now, if the water tower were active and uh, you could p- potentially, by trespassing there, um, affect the safety and efficacy of the tower and therefore, um, you know, deny the water system, the, the water system um, th- that might be a problem. But the tower that you picked, uh, you said that you picked it... Um, for visibility reasons, but I believe that it was uh, not active. It wasn't actually in service for about two years. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And the Mm -hmm. prosecution foolishly chose uh, a specific malicious destruction of property charge that was connected to key facilities such as water structures. And that was one of the, the elements of the initial charges they put against us was, is this actually a water tower that counts for municipal use because it was out of service. Um, so they, they were going to bring in experts and all those things, but uh, you know the trial didn't make it that far. We took a, a settlement because um, despite having made that initial malicious destruction of property charge as it relates to water systems, uh, the prosecution could have easily switched up to a different, lesser municipal, uh, malicious destruction of property felony. Um, so we kind of had just uh, that was an initial argument we made to kind of put up a fight to, to force a better deal. Um, essentially, they were really looking for us to do some jail time. They slapped us with uh, restitution charges that were absolutely absurd, you know, between 45000 and $75,000. Um, so, and that was just some estimate they got from some paint company, you know, that, that was not, not a legitimate number. But they were throwing all these high numbers over our heads and, and throwing jail times over our heads as a way to scare us. And there literally have been graffiti artists who have taken jail time. I, I, I certainly know a number of them. Um, so it's been really, really interesting to see the way the graffiti task force has been so forcefully prosecuting people for art. Now, I, what I find uh, quite interesting is that they uh, attacked you with malicious destruction of a vital infrastructure, but actually the government in Detroit, <laughs> well, the, the private entity there that are in control of the water are actually maliciously destroying the water in effect by denying people that water. But I just want to talk a little bit about the graffiti task force. Now, uh, I understand that Shepard Ferry was also charged with jail time and tens of thousands of dollars, but he, uh, all charges were dropped against him. Now, uh, it seemed that all charges were dropped against him much quicker than uh, what happened with you and William Luca, that they uh, seemed to have uh, focused on community resistance as if um, the whole point of going against uh, graffiti artists and not just people that are tagging, but political expression is to curb resistance, to curb community resistance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, we probably are one of the few graph artists who are prosecuted uh, for just specific resistance and graffiti art. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's very much so part of this larger desire, as, we, as you mentioned earlier, to, to clear people out of the community and clear people out of the neighborhood. 
um, this broken windows policing is a philosophy that's been taken up in places like New York. In fact, the Detroit Police Department did a consultation with the Manhattan Group, which is an organization that designed New York's stop-and-frisk policy. So they brought in the Manhattan Group to kind of help design their new technique towards policing, and which includes uh, this no windows policing, no broken windows policing philosophy, which is that if you fix up the broken windows, if you fix up the aesthetics of a community, you can reduce the crime. And, I, and I'll tell you right now, uh, you know, aesthetics are important, uh, but that's not going to change. It's ending the graffiti is not going to end poverty in Detroit. They're really just trying to make it more difficult for impoverished people to survive, to go to school, to have water, to have housing as a way to remove people. Yeah, I think yeah. uh, even, even that, same, that same sort of punishment of resistance is evident in the water shutoffs as well. Um, they, the city was prosecuting people who turned on their own water. Um, and, and even just, you know, like you pointed out the hypocrisy of them destroying the water system, them destroying the city and people's lives, the private demolition company that they paid to do the water shutoff, again, you know, notice the privatization, that company was literally destroying people's access to water. So, like, if that company came out and they had trouble turning your water off or turning your water on, uh, because, say, for instance, like, you turned your water back on, it's very cheap to turn your water back on, you just need a big pole. If you turn your own water back on, they would come out and turn it back off and in some of those instances, they would literally destroy the, the valve that opened your water and allowed your house access to water. So now you put onto that person the thousands of dollars to pay some plumber to dig up the street, you know, whatever, six to eight, ten feet down to get access to this pipeline to fix this valve that the private water company broke. And they really didn't care. I mean, I had heard some instances where the private water company was actually throwing rocks and all sorts of uh, garbage into these uh, valve, onto these valves so that residents couldn't turn their water back on. And, and you've been quite uh, instrumental in cooperating with the community in resisting uh, these water shutoffs. And I believe that you've uh, tried to uh, resist the police um, uh, shutting off people's water. Yeah, absolutely. So I do community organizing. I also have a farm uh, in Detroit. And one of the young boys that I work with, uh, Hassam and Marwan, two young boys, their water was going to get shut off. Um, I received a call from somebody, another woman in my neighborhood, Rhonda, who saw them shutting people's water off uh, down the street. So I kind of figured out what was going on, and I had known that my friend Marwan and Hassan were really uh, having difficulty paying their you know, water bills as well. And his mom was pregnant at the time. It was of Ramadan. That's the time of the year where Muslim people aren't eating. So they had been fasting all day. It was near the end of the day, like around 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they literally came to shut off uh, this, this family's water. And it's just like one dude in uh, part of a private, part of homage demolition coming to your house with his um, equipment. So we just got in the way. We were sitting on the water valves. The demolition company hung out for about a half hour in front of the house and called the cops. The cops came out and four cop cars came out to ensure, four cop cars with like six or seven cops came out to ensure that this pregnant woman's water would get shut off. That's terrible. 
Let's move on to a brighter uh, topic so that um, our, our listeners do not think that things cannot be changed, that there is nothing good happening on the ground, that uh, pe- people are resisting. And uh, w- one problem that we have, uh, apart from the water, is that in a lot of cities we have these uh, dead zones in terms of food, that people cannot have access to uh, to, to food, to, to good produce, that they must essentially just have you know, junk food to survive. I understand that you you work at an urban farm and that you're revitalizing farming and uh, organic produce. How is that working out? How is the uh, farm growing and how do people get access to this food? Yeah, so urban farming has been taken off in the city in the last couple of years. There have been a number of strong nonprofit institutions and, and groups that have been really working hard on farming and you know, one of the central things about farming is getting access to land. Uh, and that's been uh, one of the ways that some people have been able to get access to land is by, you know, squatting on it and setting up farms. And in 2012, that's what I did. Um, so I actually live, my parents actually lost their home to the bankruptcy or to, uh, to foreclosure in 2000, I think, nine or 10 to the mortgage originator was Quicken Loans, this guy. Uh, who's taken over all the buildings in the city and everything like that. Uh, but we, 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 we owned a house next door. So I actually live right next door to this house uh, in cooperation with the neighbors who moved into that house and who moved in around the block. We all kind of started clearing out these blighted abandoned houses, uh, working with some more local city officials. We got them to, uh, you know, remove the bl- blighted houses that were there. And we've cleared five lots in the middle of this densely populated uh, largely immigrant and, you know, black and Puerto Rican, really diverse community where I live. Um, we have about an acre that we're developing. Uh, we've got some lots of wood chips on the ground, some vegetables in. Uh, I just spent the last year studying organic farming at a university in central Michigan. Uh, that's actually where I am right now, is at the farm in Lansing. Um, so I'm I'm kind of developing you know, a plan to come back and start uh, a community-supported agriculture, which is people in the community can buy shares and get weekly vegetables throughout the year. So this is uh, one of the ways the mechanisms for food delivery is kind of a cooperative farm where people can buy into their vegetables and get them throughout the year. That's fantastic. You're providing people with access to good food, revitalizing the community through community involvement in growing and supporting local cooperative food production. And you're also revitalizing space that was taken from the community that became abandoned and became a blight upon the community. Taken by the banks even, you know, I mean, like a lot of those houses and these holes that developed in the community literally developed in the places where the 2008 financial crisis, I mean, I remember it, you know, as a kid, as a young person, um, the 2008 financial crisis devastated the, the people in the community and literal holes developed in the middle of neighborhoods where families once were um, because the banks let the, the banks took the houses and then poor people essentially were mining the houses for resources. People were breaking into the houses and stealing copper pipes and uh, so they get scrapped out and then people would burn them down because they were a nuisance. Um, so like you literally saw this process happen very, very rapidly where big holes in the community would develop. Uh, so yeah, we've taken one of these holes left by banks by, um, you know, larger institutions, 
the removal of families in Detroit, this process we've been discussing, and we're trying to turn it into a place where we can uh, grow food, heal the soil, and bring the community together and have a social space, social event. That's fantastic. That I, I hope that this not only occurs in Detroit, but uh, throughout the U.S. I mean, it is something that really brings the community together, and it's something that's necessary as uh, we have problems with access to good food and also, uh, you know, by, by having local food, you reduce the greenhouse mileage of um, uh, obtaining food and so it's good on a number of levels and it's just fantastic work that you're doing um, in the community. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Antonio, for your time today with us on Gravity. I really appreciate your insight, and I am very uh, happy that you no longer have to deal with uh, this, you know, the sort of Damocles above your head with respect to uh, the, the felonies that they charged you with for expressing to the people of Detroit what is happening uh, to the most vulnerable communities there. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you. And if people are interested in following our work, they can follow R-A-I-Z-U-P as a hashtag for the hip-hop collective I'm a part of. And the farm that I'm a part of is Southwest Grows, so S-W Grows. If they want to follow our story, kind of look at pictures and videos and get updates on some of the movement that's happening there. And I'll also link to that on the website. Thank you so much, Antonio. My pleasure. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.